all goes together and we can't think about ecology without thinking about economy and without thinking about the social. Welcome back to the Schalke Institute podcast. This time, director of Austria's Architecture Museum, Angelika Fitz, speaks about the revitalization of modernist housing stocks, reinvention of public spaces and zero-carbon building. I would like to briefly give you uh, some information about the institution I'm heading in Vienna as a director. It's the Architekturzentrum Wien, the architectural center, the Austria's Architecture Museum, located at the very heart of Vienna, as you can see here, in the historical district, in the actually in the imperial area of the old horse stables. This used to be the imperial horse stables, and it's now called the Museums Quarter, and it's full of museums, contemporary art museums, Museum, historical art museums, contemporary dance, digital culture, and also the architectural museums. So there are about four million visitors a, a year coming to this museum quarter. You can still see here that a lot of horses around because this used to be the Baroque imperial horse stables. We even have our public architectural library is the former pony riding hall of Emperor Sisi, this very kitschy emperor. There are a lot of films about her, so it's a very nice space we are occupying there. And what's special about the Architekturzentrum, the architectural center, is that it's both. It's a museum, so we're having a collection specialized on the 20th century and the 21st century, so very contemporary architecture. We are doing research, we are doing exhibitions, but we also have platforms, so very much like the Strelka, we are involving in current topics, we are involving in urbanism, be it in a local area, but also on a very global area. And of course, we're doing public we are doing a kids program, we are doing excursions and so more than 500 events a year. And what's really crucial for me as a director when we talk about architecture and urbanism, that we don't start with a normative, dogmatic gesture saying like, this is the right architecture, that's the way you have to do it. So I think architecture, of course, it's about design, it's about aesthetics, but it's also about society, it's a broad cultural practice, it's something which is affecting all of us. You know, if you don't like art, which I would not share, I like art, but you could always say, I avoid art, I don't go to art museums, I don't buy art, but you can't avoid architecture. So it's really touching the lives of all of us. And so I think we have to ask this very broad question, what can architecture do? What can architecture contribute to the big challenges of our society today? And if you put forward this question, then you get the next question, what are the big challenges? So where should architecture and urbanism contribute? And I think these questions or these hot topics, they are literally lying on the street. So people started to organize them and they started to experiment in new ways of living together, of building stuff together, of organizing democracy, who is allowed to speak, in what order, who is cooking meal, who is taking care of health. So this was really like a little very strong communities. And a lot of things happened after these protests. And I think what happened on a bigger scale was that people started to reflect and to discuss the financial crisis. And then they went on and said, okay, it's not just a financial crisis, it's, it's an economic crisis. 
from there they realized it's a social crisis like if you're looking at something like the housing crisis which resulted from the financial crisis and if you say like the UN stated decades ago that housing is a human right so every one of us has the right to a decent housing so this means that what the financial capitalism led to is a violation of human rights so so you have this very broad perspective and you also realize okay it's also an ecological crisis at the end. So everything is interwoven and you can't separate these topics. And what I realized that people occupying these public squares, that they really started to talk about what is good life. So they started with protesting against the financial crisis and then they started with like thinking about what would good life be. At that time, I did several projects, each of them lasting for a couple of years. So one was V-Traders swapping crisis for city when I worked with activists and architects and artists in Madrid and Lisbon and Italy and also in southern France. Or later on the project Octopolis, the art of action, which was more in former Yugoslavia and Belgrade and Croatia, but also Athens and Turkey. And so we worked on these topics. I'm not going into detail detail now with this project, so if you're interested, you can look it up on the net and also in some publications uh, we did. So, but it's a way of curating and of curatorial research, which I'm also very much putting forward in my institution in the Architekturzentrum, because I think there's not only design research, which became very popular, I think it's also about curatorial research, so that you really use platform of a cultural institution and even of an exhibition hall to work on new topics, to do some research, and of course, at the end, all dissemination of this research. But let's jump a little bit in time. A few years later, in the year 2015, we are here now in Paris, and you might remember that in autumn to or beginning of winter, I think it was in November 2015, you had the World Global Summit, uh, the Climate Summit in Paris, again talking about the two degrees and all this stuff that we desperately need to do. And there were a lot of activists from civil society saying that more has to be done and they wanted to organize a march for the climate. But at that time, a few weeks before, there were these awful terrorist attacks in Paris, if you remember, uh, with many people dying. And so no demonstrations, no manifestation, no protest was allowed. And so what the activists did, that they just put their shoes on the street to demonstrate for them. So like it was a demonstration without uh, people. And so what this image is showing that at the one hand, you can still act if you are in a very authoritarian situation, like after this terrorist attack, when there was a lot of military all over Paris, you can still act. And it shows again that everything is connected. But this time, it started the other way around. If you remember, like in 2011, it started with talking about the financial crisis and then ended up with the ecological crisis. And here it started with the ecological crisis. And from there, it was very clear, okay, we have to talk about the social crisis also. We have to talk about the economical crisis and we have to have a planetary perspective because it's really urgent now to act on a planetary level. 
And this is very much what the project I'm presenting today is about, Critical Care Architecture for a Broken Planet. It's a research project, an exhibition and a publication, which I did at our museum, which I curated together with Elke Krasny, who is a researcher and professor in Vienna at the Academy of Fine Arts, specialized in uh, feminism and urbanism. And we started with this statement that the planet is really broken now. And if you look at the word critical care, it has different meanings, of course, but one of the many meanings could be, if you look at the medical discourse, that the planet really needs intensive care. So the planet is almost dead, so he's in the very severe circumstances in hospital. So it's really not about good life anymore, it's about survival now. And if you continue like this, the planet maybe will survive, but humans won't survive on the planet. And so many people have have been describing this brokenness. I'm just quoting here one, Anna Tsing, anthropologist, uh, saying too rapid climate change, massive extinction, ocean acidification, slow decaying pollutants, fresh water contamination, critical ecosystem transitions. You could continue this, like rising sea levels, a lot of plastic in our seas, and, 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 and. And she is stating that industrialization has proved far more deadly to life on on earth than its designer might ever have dreamed. So that it's really like a shock at the moment that we realize like the track we are on is leading to somewhere where we won't survive if we continue like this. And so one interesting question in all these discussions uh, that we experience worldwide at the moment about uh, the state of our planet is that most of the people are talking about Anthropocene. It's a very kind of buzzword since a couple of years, meaning that all the problems on our planet are man-made and that man really has shaped the whole ecosystem and of course all the systems we are involved in. But the question is, is it only men or women or like is the human as such the problem or is it more something like the capitalocene? Capitalocene, so meaning that has it to do with late capitalism, with a form of capitalism or even not only late capitalism, maybe even industrialization like Anna Tsing is stating, it started then, that capitalism is the problem and that not the human beings as such are the problem. But if we put it like that, this is also good news because this means that we can also change it actually quite easily if we change the way we deal in all economic systems. And so what uh, Elke Krasny and I, what we are stating is, and architecture has always been a discipline very much involved with capitalism because architecture and urbanism both, they need a lot of resources, they need a lot of power. So they have always been involved in all these crises. And we know that architecture and urbanism also causing a lot of problems in what we call the climate change, or which we should call the climate crisis. They are consuming a lot of resources, be it financial resources or be it natural resources, and sometimes also social resources. But the good news is that maybe they can also become part of the solution because they are so heavily involved in all these problems. And here comes one term 
which we think is a very new, Elke Krasny and me, we think it's a very new and a very crucial perspective you can have within architecture and urbanism. This is the care perspective. And this is, if the title says critical care, it's one like, it's like a shock, but it could also be part of the solution. Care is something that we all know from our daily life. Most of the time, it's something between two persons or, or at least some persons like taking care of somebody, taking care of your kids or of elderly people or of your friend if she is sick or ill, like cooking a soup, this is all like taking care. Like we know that concept. But Elke and me, we were thinking about like, what would it change if architecture and urbanism also have this perspective of taking care. If they always have in mind, like, if I do this or if I do that, what is happening in the future? How is it changing the different resources? How is it changing the context, the environment? And so if they always think about doing it in a caring way. And at the moment, there are a lot of people, especially in political sciences and also in some feminist theorists, but also in social sciences, talking about concepts of care. And it's slowly, it's also kind of trickling into the design realm. I think just a few days ago, there was a big conference in Oslo, in Norway, about who cares was the title in the design disciplines. And this concept of care comes very much from the 90s, and we are using the definition that Bernice Fisher and Joan Toronto shaped on the most general level we suggest that caring be viewed as a species activity that includes everything we do to maintain, to continue, and repair our world so we can live in it as well as possible. I think it sounds very simple, like maintaining what is there, what is already good, and taking that into the future. So it has a very different attitude from modernism, which always started to act in an utopian way, make a big revolution, starting from the scratch, as they say, from tabula rasa, from nothing, from point zero. Like these concepts are not starting from point zero, they start from what's already there. And you will maybe understand it better after I've shown you some case studies. Beyond some theoretical work we did during the last three years, we were looking for case studies. We were looking for case studies all around the world. We were looking for very recent case studies from the 21st century. At the end, we selected 20 one from the 21st century from four different continents. And for us, it was very crucial that they were all realized projects. So real projects that really show a proof, not saying like, okay, we have this idea and if we do this and if we do that, maybe we could change something. So it's really about project that proved already we can change something by means of architecture and urbanism a couple of these projects now. In the exhibition and also partly in the book we did, we have uh, different chapters, uh, just to make clear again what the dimension of these crises are. Like we have one chapter talking about water and land. And of course we have this phenomena of not enough water, water scarcity, of the question of clean water and dirty water, the question of rising sea levels that's really endangering many areas on the planet. We have the question of 
land speculation and that we are consuming too much land and land is getting more and more expensive and we can't afford housing anymore because the land is too expensive. One project now from Bangladesh, Friendship Center from the office Urbana from Kashif Chowdhury, done in 2012. It's a training center in the very rural Bangladesh for the local community to train different facilities there from healthcare to agricultural techniques. And as you can see, this is the rainy season. There is a lot of water every year and it's rising and rising and rising. And here you see already the edge of the training center on the bottom part. And here what uh, they normally do in Bangladesh to work with against this water, they're rising the levels which is very expensive, very land consuming and are very really changing the landscape. Urbana did the project that just built on the existing ground. Actually they had no different opportunity because they didn't have the budget to rise the whole terrain. And they included ponds into the building. They said the water is part of the architecture. We don't work against the water, we work with the water. So they make these different ponds in the building and they have this fishing pond outside. You see it on the very left and it's like communicating vessels when there's really a lot of water. The water goes from the ponds in the building into this outside pool. Here on the back, the, the, the outside pool, the fishing pond, and you see the whole uh, complex with these different courtyards. It's very much in the shape of an old Buddhist monastery, which is very popular in this area. It's beautiful, but very cheaply made, very locally made, handmade, with local bricks architecture. And here you see it in the rainy, that's like the pipes they needed for these communicating vessels. Ponds, which are also great for natural ventilation, because it, there's no AC, so it's working with the green roofs and with these ponds and the wind going through and cooling it down. So it, it's very low cost, it's very social, it's very ecological, and yeah, it's a great project. Another chapter uh, we are having in our research and in our exhibition is the question of how to deal with all this stuff that is already built. So I think one of the really biggest topics all over Europe, but even beyond, I'm sure it's the same in Russia, all these modernist buildings from the post-war era, especially these big housing blocks, but also other building stock, which is a kind of decaying, and people used to destroy it, to tear it down and build new stuff, which is very resource consuming and very much into speculation. And of course, which is also very much into gentrifying stuff and in evicting people. Case study from Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo downtown. It's um, not, maybe not a no-go area, but a very problematic area. So it's not this fancy downtown. Like very often in Latin America, the downtown is the area where kind of the leftovers have to find their housings. So there are some refugees there, there are some occupied houses there. So it's a rather rough area. In the middle with the pool on top, which is a new intervention, part of the new intervention, the pool, this used to be a department store, actually a store for furniture. And this is also very typical for our time. In online commerce, we are losing these uh, this department stores, so it's all solved through digital channels, and so we will have a lot of empty department stores. And here, a local foundation, it's a foundation of the trade union, they converted this former department store in this very bad cent but central area into a public space and into a cultural center. They opened the building up, again, it's all natural ventilation, they made this ramps 
all through the building, so it's all publicly accessible. They have a lot of functions in there, so in the former garage, there's a theater, they have a restaurant with very cheap and healthy food, they have sports facility, they have a dental clinic, they have a library, and they have this great pool on the top. If you think about the city of Sao Paulo, uh, the rich are using the helicopter to go to the country club, and the poor ones live in the center and have no public space and no greenery and nothing, so suddenly they are having this collective penthouse and their pool up there for no money. Now I'm coming to France, second project in this chapter of the repairing modern buildings, the back, the old building, a little bit there. It's a very ordinary building block. You have it all over uh, Russia, we have it in Austria, they have it in France. It's a very common social housing block. They wanted to destroy it and to build some new blocks because in France, these buildings have a very bad image. They say it's only, it's, it's for a very low social class. There's a lot of drug problems, criminal problems. Problems. So they wanted to tear it down and to build a new decent housing. So this would have been consuming a lot of energy, consuming a lot of funds, consuming a lot of new soil, of land. And it would have also meant for all the people to move to a new place, to pay more rent. So it, it would have been a very complex crisis. And then uh, Lacadova Sal and Frédéric Truyron and Christophe Hutter, together with the uh, housing developer, with the public housing agency, they decided to repair the old building. And they made a very simple intervention. They just said, we are doing these winter gardens. We put it in front of the existing building stock. We are making lofts out of these little flats. And this is also the thermal insulation. I don't know how it's working here, but in Austria it's working like that. All the old buildings from the 60s and 70s, they are they're getting thermal insulation, which is in fact all plastic. It's working in terms of insulation, but nobody knows what's going to happen with these materials in 20 or 30 years, because it's all very poisoning. And so here they're solving this problem with architecture. The very smart way they did it. So here you see this very, very ordinary buildings, rather young, uh, rather old. And they had these prefabricated models. They were just putting it there day by day. So for the people, they stayed there. Nobody had to move. So, so they just had this construction work in front of their windows for two weeks. And after that, they had a new flat. And here you can see some of the new flats. And it was always like a rabbit cage. It was so small and so kind of, you always felt like, okay, I have social rent. I don't deserve anything bad in this sense. Now suddenly it's like having a house, like I feel like having a castle. And, and so it's for the same price. They even pay less rent uh, because they have less energy costs. So this is something you could do a thousand times, maybe even a million times all over Europe. The cost of one for one flat is about 60,000 euros, so much cheaper than building anything new. Another big, big crisis we are facing on the climate is this question, how are we reacting to natural disaster or, or even to, to war disasters? There is this international aid industry coming with tents and containers, earning a lot of money actually, some money which is never staying in the local region, but which is always going somewhere else. So it's a whole globalized industry, which is also meaning that the local people, they are just getting these containers or tents, they are not contributing, they are not educated, they are very passive, and they are losing all their skills. It's of Yasmin Lari, 
project we have seen in Sao Paulo was from Mendes de la Rocha and MBB. So he's a very famous Pritzker Prize winning architect. And you could also see maybe this kind of very designed architecture. Also, it was low tech. Here, it's really low tech, but still done by a very prominent architect, by Yasmin Lari, who is the Pakistani architect. She's about 80 now, and she used to do this big, brutalist buildings in Pakistan, like headquarters of oil companies, big hotels, and so this very modernist, concrete, brutalist architecture. And at a certain point, she involved into heritage preservation, and she had to learn all these traditional techniques in Pakistan, like mud and lime. And then she was thinking, why can't we build houses that are really resistant to water and earthquake that will always survive? And but just build it with no cost, so it's really about zero cost, just with earth, with dirt, which is lying around everywhere in Pakistan. And so she developed like this housing, which looks very brutal again, which this big base, because it's about, it's waiting for the water, which is coming every year. And the concept is that these houses will survive the water, also they, the water will be in the house, and that all the belongings of one village is stored on these bamboo huts on the upper floor. So all the, the dresses or all the little animals or all the seeds they need for agriculture, that everything is stored up there and can then be brought back to the houses which are not destroyed. They are flooded, but they are not destroyed. And the incredible thing about this, that she's with her institution, with her NGO, she's educating local people, and it's like a snowball system. They are educating other local people, especially women are involved into this process, and she's calling it the barefoot entrepreneurs because they're also earning a little bit of money with that, with educating other people. And these people, with their own hands and with educating the others, they built 40,000 houses in the last four years in Pakistan. 40,000 houses, so that's really something. With no budget, so it's always local materials. So it's really non-budget, it's zero waste, it's zero carbon, so it's very social, it's very eco-friendly, and it's not needing international aid anymore. Yes, so that's all. they're also doing a lot of different projects, like this is a, a smokeless, eco-friendly, stove for cooking because you know these all these 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 small problems we are facing on earth like if the women cook with a lot of wood this means first that they have to collect this wood a lot of time a lot of work and then they're causing a lot of co2 so using less wood is very eco-friendly and so they are constructing all these different and uh, developing all these different products yasmin lari you really like the grand the grand dam of Pakistani architecture, and she's just visiting the Sindh area after it was affected heavily from a big, big flood. And they built some houses there the, the year before, and now she's coming back looking at the houses if it's really working. Many of these houses are destroyed. So I think this is very important that it's never about nostalgia if you're using these local materials like mud and lime. So it's not doing it like they have always done it. So it's really about bringing it into the 21st century and using modern engineering to work in a new way with these traditional materials. And that's exactly what she is doing. And so they are looking at this village which is still not destroyed. They just have to renew the mud. So he's now showing like how what happened, like where the watermark was, how high it was, and he like he says we're just repairing it, but it worked. And they brought all their belongings up to this bamboo community.
Center. One important topic, I think you know it very well, also from Moscow, is the question of public space, be it privatization, be it austerity politics, meaning like we don't have the money anymore to do nice public spaces or to do nice parks. It's all the question of surveillance, of course. We are all living in that utopia. Everything we do in public space and also in private spaces is surveyed. It's very much the question of traffic and air pollution, the question of mobility. Very simple but very radical project from Barcelona, the Superblock. It was initiated by the government in Barcelona, by the municipality. Very famous Barcelona grid here. It's a very, the, the Cerda grid, the very rectangular grid. What they said, like Barcelona has a very bad air quality. Also they're on the seaside, but they have this a very difficult shape in the landscape. So they have a lot of traffic and they have very bad air. And so what the mayor wanted to do, that you don't just have this main pedestrian areas like the Rambla or like here the old Arbat, so, but that you have very ordinary neighborhoods as pedestrian area or at least a traffic reduced area. You know, nothing special there, nothing commercial, no sites, let's just get the cars out. And what they did, they defined these super blocks and they always said the traffic is just going on the periphery, but inside we are not allowing traffic. This means that they are also not allowing cars to park. Because I think discussion, I guess you're also having it, we are having it everywhere, that it's not just about the flow, traffic flowing, it's about the cars standing around everywhere. And if we know that land is very expensive, even if they have to pay, they are never paying for the value of the land. And of course, everyone wants to use her or his car, like you don't want the others to use their car, but you want to use your car. And so also in Barcelona, they had huge discussions about this and saying, you can't do that, where should we park and so on. And what they did, they said, let's just try it out temporary. And they are not investing money. They are just using a little bit of color. They are painting on the street and just say, let's try it out for a couple of weeks if you're really using public space, if the kids are using public space, if you're doing yoga on the street or if you're sleeping in the street or if you're eating on the street or whatever. If it's just humans being on the streets and not cars, like how would it feel? And maybe you would like it and maybe you would be more open about that. And you can see they are not using some expensive stones or anything. So it's not about a big investment, not at all. It's not, it's not a physical transformation. It's more in the mind. And they managed to do two super blocks so far. So they are permanent now. And they want to do this net of super blocks all over Barcelona. And it's really amazing. So I was walking down next to the Diagonal uh, recently, a few weeks ago, and I didn't think about the super block. And suddenly you just go around the corner and it's like, oh, it's so quiet, there are no cars, what happened? So it, it's even, it's so strange because it's a very daily situation, it's not a pedestrian zone, it's just happening. So it's, it's very controversial but very interesting, I think, for many cities on the world. 
talking about public space, I think it's of course also about design quality and it's again about how we deal with already there because making new parks very often means that we are destroying or kind of cleaning what's already there. You know, we have uh, many cities, for example, we have these brownfield developments like the former train stations and you have some stuff there, you have some buildings there, you have some truck there, then people say, oh, let's do a nice park and they make this tabla rasa, they erase everything, they start from zero and do a nice park or sometimes not a nice park. And here it was a similar topic. It's a psychiatric hospital in Belgium, in Melle, close to Ghent. And here you see the old plan of the hospital showing all these pavilions. That's how it used to be, but all these pavilions were, almost all of them were replaced through modern buildings during the last years. That's happened all over the world, I think, because they didn't fit to the modern needs anymore. And only two of them were left. One was destroyed and the last one, the last man standing, manager of the clinic of the hospital started the process with the clients, the patients, and with the doctors and all the people working there, like, what would we need? Should we really tear this down? Or maybe we could even use this structure? And then they made a competition and what they did is the architect suggested to make a three-dimensional park. They even destroyed the roof more than it was destroyed already. So they let the sunbeams in and they planted some trees in the building. They also installed some greenhouses there, which are now at the moment not used as greenhouses because people, especially patients, like this space so much that they want to have their therapy sessions in there, so they don't like the hospital spaces anymore, so they are using this three-dimensional park to do that. You can just use it as a park, so you have a little bit of a shelter, but you're still in the open. I'm coming to the last chapter, not... Hope you can still take one more case study. It's about the question of production, which is, of course, also very much connected with the state of our neoliberal capitalism. We know we have a very global capitalism taking goods from A to B to C all over the world. And if you're producing something, this metal comes from this continent, the other metal comes from the other continent, and you need a lot of transfers and a lot of container ships until you have a smartphone phone assembled in China or somewhere else. And so the question of local production is very interesting, especially thinking about the rural area. That's a topic we are facing all over the planet, that people are leaving rural areas, that they are migrating to the city, adding to a lot of problems to the fast growth of the city, to the housing crisis, but also adding to the vacancy on the countryside, that only old people are still living in the villages. So this question of having production, of having jobs in the countryside, a sustainable economy is really crucial. One very beautiful example from rural China if we think of China nowadays, we think about the big cities, about like Shanghai, Shenzhen, and so on. But of course, they have this huge rural hinterland, and people keep on migrating to the big cities. Also, it's illegal at the moment. You need a permit to go to the cities, but people are still migrating. And Xu Tian Tian 
female architect from Beijing, educated in Harvard. One of her projects in the Kajai village, it's a tofu factory. She's always calling it factory because that it's really, it's not a manufacturer, she wants it to be a factory. The way she is working, she is doing research on the different villages here up in the mountain. It's a very nice landscape, but still people are leaving because they have no jobs. And she is realizing they have different skills. And in this village, they are very skilled in making tofu out of soya beans. But they are doing it at home. And even in China, it's not allowed to sell this homemade stuff because you need hygienic certificate to get it on the market. And so she's using this knowledge, this local skills, to make a collective production, which is meeting the standards of all the certifications. Yeah, so all the people living in the village now can produce tofu together in this tofu factory. The way she's working with her little local factories is also that they are all produced by local companies so she's designing it in a very simple way so you don't need external workforce to set it up so it can be done with local knowledge. You could say it's just a very small project. It's just creating maybe 30 or 40 jobs. But what's so amazing about her work in, in this region in Songyang is that she has done more than 30 projects so far. And there's a tofu factory, there's a brown sugar factory, there is some ceramics, there is something working with bamboo. So she's looking at all the different skills and all the different characteristics of these little, little villages, the rice wine, workshop, of course, a very nice one, tea oil. So they have a network, she's calling it acupunctures. And I think what this uh, map is showing that the perspective we are stressing in this research project is not about small, single, bottom-up initiatives. Yes, we need them, they are nice, but I don't think they will save the planet. I think it's really about new networks, new alliances. So the third important thing is about the care perspective in architecture. We have to consider all the three, ecology, economic, and the social. Because a lot of people say, if you are talking about the state of the planet, yes, it's important, but ecology is something for the rich. You have to be able to do it, you have to afford it, like people who are hungry can't think about ecology. But I think it all goes together and we can't think about ecology without thinking about economy and without thinking about the social. Another thing which is connecting all the case studies, yes, they are bottom-up, they are coming from civil society, some of them, not all of them, but only to some part. So it needs both. It needs bottom-up, and it needs top-down. We won't solve these big problems by bottom-up only. So we need better governments, we need good NGOs, we also need better entrepreneurs. And we need architects who are willing and able to find new alliances. As I said at the beginning, architecture and urbanism are part of capitalism, of late capitalism. And so the question is, how can we find other clients? How can we find other networks? How can we kind of cooperate, collaborate, co-create with different disciplines and with new ways of funding also? And I think that's also something you saw in the projects. They all think on a very planetary level. They think about the planet, 
but they all work very locally. So the ones in Pakistan, they work with mud and lime and bamboo. The ones in France, they work with prefab, very industrial methods. So you couldn't say like, this is the way to save the planet. So you have really to use your no local knowledge. That's very important. And that brings me to one of my last points. I think what the care perspective means in architecture is that you have to start with a given with what's already there. You have to look and to look again and to think about what's valuable here, where could we start, where could we connect to, what could we repair. So it's not about a revolution in the sense of we start from scratch, we do everything different now. It's more about what we say, it's not about reventing the future, it's about repairing the future. And so that's also something we did at the beginning of our research project, actually up till now. We also, as a museum, we started a public workshop in one of the urban transformation areas in Vienna. It's the, the Northern Station, the Nordbahnhof in Vienna, you see here. And there is this warehouse here, abundant warehouse. And so we started a public workshop there with co-working, co-making space, with a lot of little entrepreneurs working there, with exhibitions, with summer schools, involving in the transformation of this area and introducing a care perspective. It's one of these typical brownfield former train station areas. And if you look at it from the top, you think it's all flat, but it's not. You have some buildings there, you have some tracks there. You have some plants there, you have some animals there. And if they're doing a park there in parts of it, the question is, could they take something which is already there or do we need everything anew? So it's an ongoing process we are involved in Vienna. It's very low impact, it's just cardboard, it's very lightweight, so it really has no, hardly any impact on the environment. If you want to learn more about this, we have published a book with MIT Press, Critical Care, Architecture and Urbanism of a, for a Broken Planet, and you will find all the details there. Thanks a lot. Angelica was part of Strzelka X Summer in 2019. Her full lecture followed by a Q&A session is available at the Strzelka Institute YouTube channel via the link in the episode description. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't miss the next episode in a week's time. Bye!